I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. So Jesus describes himself as the first and the last. Isaiah 44 and verse 6 mentions God as the first and the last. Jesus is saying here that he is the almighty. All right. So Jesus is with his people. There's nothing to be afraid of. Now, verse 18, when Jesus says, I'm the living one, I died, behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. What does that mean? What does Jesus mean here when he says, I'm the one who died, now I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. What does that mean? And by the way, how did he get the keys of death and Hades? What does he mean when he says, I was dead, I'm alive, and I'm alive forevermore, and now I have the keys of death and Hades, and how did he get the keys? The resurrection is exactly how he got the keys. You remember Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, You're Peter, on this rock I will do what? In my church, and what's the rest? The gates of Hades won't prevail against me. And then he goes on to tell him, Matthew 16, 21, Son of man will be delivered over to the chief priest, be killed, rise again the third day. The gates of Hades don't prevail against the church or stop Jesus from building the church because he's going to rise from the dead. A lot of people in the Old Testament died, and there were some resurrections. Elijah and Elisha performed some of them. Jesus performed some in his lifetime. But when Jesus says here, I'm the one who was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore, he's the first person to die and rise from the dead and never to die again. And as was mentioned, it is because of the resurrection that he's the one that has the keys to death and Hades. So John and the seven churches and Christians who read the book of Revelation today have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Every plague, every curse, every punishment that's coming in this book is not aimed at faithful people of God. In fact, that's the whole reason why Revelation 2 and 3 exists, to say, hey, don't get caught in God's crossfire. You've got nothing to be afraid of. He's saying to John and to these Christians in the first century, if you suffer for me, and you will, and you die in that suffering, don't be afraid, because I've got the keys and I'll unlock the door and let you out, and you'll live forevermore. Tim Keller in his book on um, walking with God through pain and suffering tells this story about a man who his wife died, he had a young daughter, and they were riding the car together, and he was trying to console his daughter. There had been some time since his wife's passing, and one day he's sitting in this car, and a big moving truck passes by them, and the shadow covers over their car. And he says to his young daughter, would you rather be hit by that truck or by its shadow? And she says, of course. I'd rather be hit by a shadow, because if I'm hit by a shadow, it can't harm me. And the father said, that's right. Your mother wasn't really hit by death. She was simply hit by a shadow, because Jesus stood in the way, and he was actually hit by the truck of death. So we have nothing to be afraid of. Jesus took our place in death, and now all death can do is promote us to a more glorious life. It can't harm us. It can't touch us. It just promotes us to eternal glory. The poet said one time, Herbert, he says, to death we should mock, do your words, and I'll come back better than before. And that's what Jesus is saying in Revelation 1.18. He's saying, I, I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore, and you've got nothing to fear. And then 19 and 20, we talked about this last time, he uncovers this symbol for us. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus. This is what he was holding. The seven stars are the seven angels or the seven messengers of the seven churches, and the lampstands are the seven churches. So there you go. That's chapter one. Now in every section, maybe not every chapter, but in every section, we want to do this at the end. 
a hearing and keeping? How do we take what we learn and apply it? We'll do this one quickly today, but how do we learn from Revelation 1, 1 through 20 to hear and keep? Remember, John said that's who gets the blessing, Revelation 1, 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud, who hears, and keeps the words written in this prophecy. So how do we hear and keep Revelation 1, 1 through 20? Here we go. Number one, thank God for the inspired message. John says that this was revealed to him. Revelation 1, 1 through 3, it didn't have to be. And one of the ways that we keep what we find in the first chapter of the book of Revelation is to thank God for even revealing the message to us. He didn't have to. He chose to. And in his goodness and glory, he's revealed it to us. We should hear that message and we should keep it. Number two, realize that the triune God is involved in our lives. In Revelation chapter one, there's the Father, there's the Son, and then there's the seven spirits or representative of the complete and holy, the Holy Spirit of God. Realize that we don't do life alone. The triune God is involved in our lives. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, baptize them into the name of the who? Father, Son, and we're baptized not only into Christ's death, but into that relationship with all three members of the Godhead. And Revelation begins, it starts out by saying, hey, God's deeply involved in the lives of his people. Help me. Next, we need to learn how to wait. John said he endured in Revelation 1 and verse 9 in patient endurance. And in our lives as God's people, we've got to learn how to wait. If you're in the midst of trouble right now, my advice to you is to learn how to hang on. And if you're not, start practicing. Because much of the Christian life or the success of our Christian lives revolves around this idea. How well do we wait? God does show up and deliver his people, but often not as we suspect or want him to immediately. And Revelation is really the holdover until God does the things that he's written in these 22 chapters through John. And so the first chapter says, learn how to wait. James 1, 2 through 4 says, be patient and endure. And in that, there's something to rejoice in because you develop the spiritual maturity that you need to make it through life. See Jesus as he is and not as we want to see him. John gives us a picture. We don't normally have this Revelation 1, 12 through 16 picture of Jesus in our VBS, but this is the Jesus that John saw in his resurrected state, showing him his power, his might, his glory. And we need to see Jesus just as he is and just as he reveals himself in Scripture. Get rid of fear, for it will wreck you. Now, this is true about the book of Revelation, right? John's going to be shown these various things, and several times, John's just going to be overwhelmed, and his default reaction is going to be to be afraid. And Jesus is going to remind him and the churches throughout the book of Revelation, do not be afraid. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, Paul says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I read an article just yesterday. This guy was talking about the world in which we live and the culture and all of that. And he was talking about how America's going down, downhill more. And I think everybody would agree with that, right? Most people would agree. And he was saying that based on that, Christians should be ready, which is right. And then he said, Christians should tremble in fear because God's judgment is coming. And I'm saying, God's judgment isn't coming on his people because of a wicked nation. Our eternal destiny is not intertwined with the rise and fall of any nation. Jesus would say to America what he says to Christians in America, what he said to Christians in Rome. Hold fast, be faithful, and do not be afraid. When he comes in judgment, he won't mix us up with the rest of the rabble. God knows how to separate the righteous from the wicked, 2 Peter 2. And so we should get rid of fear. But in every aspect of our lives, God never wants his people to be afraid unless it's righteous reverence for him. If we don't get rid of fear, fear that we're going to run out of money, fear that our health may not hold us, fear that relationships are fragile and break, it will wreck us. We'll be paralyzed from doing anything good 
for God. And so the message of Revelation is, do not be afraid. The one you serve holds the keys to death and life, whatever life throws at you. And when they finally snuff it out and take your life, you'll be waiting at the back door with the keys to let you out, not into just life again, but to a more glorious life than we had the first time. John says, get rid of fear. Here's the last one. Jesus is in the midst of his church. When he saw Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, you remember what he said? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute who? Me. Why could Jesus say that? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was what? His church. It's his church. And when you persecute the church, you persecute him. The book of Revelation says Jesus is not just in heaven looking down on the church, but he's in the midst of her even as we work and serve them right now. So Revelation 1 says, remember, especially chapter 1, 12, and 13, Jesus walks in the midst of the seven churches. He's in, in the midst of this community. All right, let's transition to chapter 2. All right, examining the churches in chapter 2, just a few introductory remarks, and then we'll get into the four churches that we discussed in chapter 2. Here's where your worksheet probably will come in handy. Some of this is on the worksheet. Some of the stuff in the worksheet I just threw in there, so you guys fill in the blanks. We're not going to collect it for a grade. Just All right. Jesus speaks to the churches directly. God speaks throughout all the Bible. But here's something interesting about Revelation 2 and 3. You have Jesus speaking directly to the churches. In the epistles, you think about like Ephesians or Colossians or any one of those. Paul is communicating God's will to the churches. And make no mistake about it, it is as if Jesus is speaking himself. 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul says... Let every man acknowledge, if he thinks himself a prophet or spiritual, that the things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So all of the New Testament is from Jesus. But Revelation 2 and 3 is a little bit different because you read the book of Ephesians and it's like, well, how are they doing? We don't know. Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, this is exactly how you're doing. This is how you're behaving. And it's just direct speech. You don't have to worry about that. Here's the next one. Jesus is described several times throughout the book of, in Revelation 2 and 3 as the one who, know, who knows. The knowing one, this Greek word oida, over and over again, he's going to say, I know your works, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. If you're taking notes, here are the references. Let's just look at a few of these. Go to Revelation chapter 2, and I'll just read as much as we need to see about how this works with I know your works. Jesus is described as the knowing one. Now, there are several Greek words for know, but oida means more than just, hey, I heard about that, I've got knowledge. It suggests a deep familiarity. Jesus is saying, I know exactly what's going on. And this is for the good and the bad. Look at Revelation 2 and verse 2 to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, how you can't bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. Look at this message to Smyrna, which is a little different. Revelation 2 and verse 9. I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you're rich. And I know the slander of the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. Chapter 2, 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus is saying, I know where you have to work. I know how hard it is to be a Christian in Pergamum. I know where you work. Chapter 2 and verse 19. I know your works, your love and your faith, your service and patient endurance. Chapter 3 and verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your what? I know your works. Look at chapter 3 and verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. The church in Philadelphia. I know your works. And then chapter 3 and verse 15. To the church of Laodicea. I know your works. You need to hop north pole. 
when Jesus was on earth, he would say things like this in Matthew 16, about verse 26 and 27. When the Son of Man returns, he will come and reward every person according to their what? How can he reward everybody according to their works? Because he knows them. He says, I know your works. I know what you've done. You can't fool me. Sometimes people kind of have these judgment day scenes. It's fictional. We don't know exactly how it's going to be. But people say things like, when I stand before God in judgment, I'm going to say, you won't say anything. Because he's going to already know. You won't be able to say, well, I meant to. I know your words. And I was intending to. I know your words. You don't realize how hard I know your tribulation and your poverty. I was a Christian in Las Vegas. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He knows. Revelation 2 and 3 describes Jesus as the knowing one. Over and over again, he is the Christ who knows. Here's the other thing. How does Jesus know his church so thoroughly and intimately? How does he know all this stuff? I know the right answer is he's God, he knows everything, but what else would give him the information that he has? What was that? He's in the midst of his churches. He's walking in and among his church. I don't know how we view Jesus today. Like, well, Jesus is in heaven, that's true, but he's in leaving heaven. He knows what, this is comforting. You say, I'm laboring, what I do never makes the bulletin. People don't know what I do, they don't post it on Facebook, God knows. And if we shirk our duty, we can't fool him because God knows exactly what we're doing. And this is the thing about Jesus in Revelation. We see Jesus loves, but Jesus also punishes, and he's serious with his churches. When I was growing up, we kind of, my friends and I, we would judge our parents based on how they disciplined and how they responded. If we want to do something, we might say, we're going to go to your house because, you know, your mom's trying to sleep on the job. We can get away with it. And then my other people's parents we would say, we can't do that. His mom doesn't play. She doesn't. I'll let you figure out what camp my mom was in. But anyway, <laughs> listen, Jesus doesn't play. Revelation 2 and 3, he won't let anything pass. Every compliment is awarded, but every transgression is pointed out. He doesn't play. When Jesus shows up, he says, you're doing this great. That's great. But hey, you missed it here. Hey, you did great here, but you failed. And if there's nothing to compliment, he won't flatter. He won't say anything unless he really means it. He's the one who knows. And as Gary mentioned this, because... He's walking up and down in the church, and he knows what his people are doing and who they are. John 1, 14, he's full of grace and truth. He knows the truth because he knows everything. And here's the last thing. Revelation 2 and 3, Revelation 2 and 3, set the stage for the rest of the book. It is the key to interpreting chapters 4 through 22. So you might say to yourself, hey, these are the parts I know the best. Then rejoice because it's going to help you with the rest. Revelation 2 and 3, really 1, 2, and 3, God talks to the churches. But when you get to chapter 4 onward, the church kind of takes a backseat view, and now God's acting, Jesus is acting, dealing with the Romans and the persecution against his people, and he's basically telling his people, I've got this. You guys fix and work on what's going on in chapters 2 and 3 that you don't have right, and then let me deal with the world. You need to hear that message. We often want to flip this. Let's go out and fix the world. Let's campaign. Let's do this. Let's do this political. Jesus is saying, chapter 2 and 3, those are your chapters. Focus on fixing the thing. Of course we need an influence out in the world. But we gain that influence and maximize it when we get chapters 2 and 3 right. He says, you fix the church. I'll deal with Babylon. You do what I told you to do, and I'm going to work on them. You know, something I learned this time, reading through and working through Revelation that I hadn't noticed before. I guess I saw this, and I never paid any attention before, is Jesus' refusal to quit on his church. You read Revelation 2 and 3, and there are some churches in here. We're going to see them. We would describe them as liberal. We would say, this church, man, they've gone up the deep end. They've got a false teacher, and she's a woman, in the midst of the congregation. And Jesus says, hey, you still my people. You've got to straighten it out. Of course, he doesn't let anything slide. You've got to repent. But I'm not going to turn out the lights on you. Not that easy. 
Jesus refuses to quit on his church. They're ultra-conservative churches. People buying the things and missing the mark. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you don't straighten up, I will eventually come and remove the lampstand. I will do that. But I really don't want to. Please repent. Please change. Please turn. If that's not the Christ we see when we think about the church, we missed him. He really doesn't want anybody to perish. 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9. And that's the Jesus we encounter throughout Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. As we read through these letters, hear his voice, his beckoning, his call to them. Repent, Revelation 2, 5. Repent, Revelation 3, 19. I don't want this to be your ruin. I don't want it to be your end. And I want you to stick with it. All right, we're ready for Revelation chapter 2. Let's read verses 1 through 7. The first four churches, and I've kind of tagged all of these with the name. You might kick back against this. Well, they did have something right. Why are you using the negative characteristic? This is more to help me remember what was wrong with this church, what their big problem was. So Ephesus, this is the loveless church, and we'll see why in a minute. Can we get somebody to read Revelation 2, 1 through 7? Jeremy. Jeremy. To the angel of the church of Ephesus right. these things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. Tested those that they, they are apostles that are not, they have found in lies. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, that where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from your place, unless you repent. This you have, that you hate your, the deeds of the Galatians. Which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. All right, so that's the first church. John addresses them first. We talked about this last time, if you remember. I showed you on the little map. From Patmos to Ephesus, this is the closest church. You meet them first if you were voyaging that way. Uh, Patmos was 450 miles southwest, so on the map down and to the left, if you're looking at a New Testament map, maybe in the back of your Bible, that's how you would get to Ephesus. Patmos, that'd be the first church you run into. So John addresses them first. He's gonna go in order in these churches. And first he starts with Ephesus. So Ephesus was one of the first Asian centers for the imperial cult, which was emperor worship. This was one of the first places where people worshiped the emperor. And it was also prominent. Domitian, the emperor of Rome, he's the one who was the emperor at the time of Revelation. He allowed Ephesus to be the title of the guardian of this temple. Some people called Ephesus the jewel of Asia. It was the center of trade in that part of the world and was home to the famous temple Artemis or Diana. You remember that, Acts 19, 28, Paul goes there to preach for three hours. People get together and they cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians and they won't stop crying out. Eventually Luke says, the people are just there hollering. They don't even know why they've come together, but here we are, we've got our wealth by Diana and all this stuff prominent, rich city. It's going to make it important what Jesus says about this place and why. It was magnificent, cultured, and prosperous. The ruins of Ephesus are impressive, including this massive theater. Paul was there. Acts 1929, Acts 1931, they tried to drag him out. They had a library, temples, bathhouses, gymnasiums, and streets. It would have been quite the city for a church to do her work in. What do you know about the city of Ephesus from the New Testament? I brought this little thing. Nadia and I went to went a gospel meeting in Indianapolis last year. We went to some museum, and this little, this is a model of the temple of Artemis or Diana. You can Google this, and this is the picture that will show up. They had this there, and this is where Paul would have seen people offering up worship and sacrifices to 
the goddess of Artemis or Diana in Ephesus. It's the god they worship. So you're a Christian in this bolstering, prosperous city, but you've got to preach the gospel that Diana is a lord and neither is Caesar, only Jesus. What else do you know about Ephesus just from the New Testament? It was prominent in their world, but also in the New Testament. What do we know? Just give me anything you know about the city of Ephesus. I'll start you off. This is easy. Everybody's going to get this. Paul wrote a book called the book of E. You're scholars. You didn't know it, but you're all <laughs> Yeah, so Paul wrote a book called Ephesians. But there's more. What else do we have on the city of Ephesus? Just think. None of these are trap or trick questions. Just think. What do you know about the church at Ephesus? Paul wrote them a letter. Okay. What else? Timothy was. First Timothy 1, 3 through 4, Paul says, when I went to Macedonia, I left you in Ephesus to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy was there. So that's probably the background and context of 1st and 2nd Timothy. What else? Paul was their local preacher for a time. Paul spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else. Three years he did. Acts 19, 10 says he was working in a school of Tyrannus. He rented it out for two years. And in Acts 20, 30, and 31, he says, I preached to you three years, night and day. Paul was their local preacher. John spent some of his life there. The last part of his life, Apollos worked there. Acts 18, 24 through 28. This church was more spiritually equipped and mature than probably any other church. Pick your favorite preachers in the first century. You've got Paul, Timothy, Apollos, John, all of them worked in Ephesus. They had a letter written to them. Paul calls the elders of Ephesus to the Isle of Miletus in Acts chapter 20 and encourages them, hey, whatever you do, I want you to make sure you don't let in false teachers, you hold fast. This was a blessed church and all the things that they had. We can say more, but what does all of this tell you about the church at Ephesus, all these teachers and preachers they had? What does this tell you about them? It should have been very strong and very solid. It should have been strong and solid. You would expect that, right? Yeah. That they'd be strong and solid. Why? Why, Bobby? Because they had what? Well, the gospel. They had preaching. good gospel and they had good preaching. Aren't there churches that just have a heritage of good preaching? I don't want to start calling names, but I'll call one that I've never really spent time with them. But every time I hear about this congregation, they just have had a long legacy of good preachers. I'll just call one, Creep Hall. I had to spend a lot of time there. I think I've been there once just visiting, but Tom Holland was their preacher, Dan Winkler. I think Bill Watkins is the preacher. Now is that right? I mean, just this, hey, they had sound instruction. I would, I would call it. I'll do one more. All right, one more. All right, one more. <laughs> South Green Street. Steve Higginbotham has preached there. Bar. Well, just a long legacy. And when you go there, if you spend time around the folk, there's a level of spiritual maturity and depth. And so that's the church in Ephesus. All right. So Jesus starts off praising the church. Somebody tell me, what do they have right? Quick, it's in verses 2 and 3. Just read the verse and tell me what it says. Somebody who hasn't talked yet, by the way. What do we have? What does Jesus praise about this church? They can't bear those who are evil. All right, that's one. Andy has one. He knows their works. They're working, church. They're doing something. What else? Verses 2 and 3. They can't bear evil. He knows their works. What else? Their endurance. They don't give up. They don't quit. There's more. <coughs> their patience. They bear up under trials and hardship. They're not quitters. What else? They test those who say they're false. They don't tolerate false teaching. They won't. Go to Acts chapter 20. Go to Acts 20. This is impressive. They got this from Paul, I believe. And all these decades later, as Bobby mentioned, it still stuck with them. Paul gave a warning to the elders in Acts 20 and about verse, oh, about verse 29. You, you see that? Acts 20 and verse 29. I know after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not spared in the flock, and from among your own selves. That's from the elders 
uh, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. When they came, the Ephesians were ready. Paul already told them, no, you can't come here and preach that. No, we won't tolerate. They were sound in the faith. He told Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4, charge some to teach no other doctrine. This was a church that if you came there and taught something that wasn't in the Bible, somebody was going to raise their hand and say, wait a minute, we've got a question. That's not right. The elders would say, hey, that's not sound doctrine. That's not what the New Testament teaches. Neither does it correspond with the prophets and the law and the writing. It's not sound. It's not right. So Jesus praises them for that. Do you remember what Jesus taught Matthew 7, 15 through 20? There will be false teachers, but you will know them by their what? By their fruit. By the evidence of what they do. And that's what this church is doing. 1 John 4 and verse 1, John says, Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. In 1 John 4 and 1, spirits, there probably is just a reference to preachers. Don't believe every preacher, but examine them. Test everything. Hold on to what's good. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. And that's what this church is doing. Look at Revelation 2, though. Because remember, we said this letter would have been delivered and somebody would have stood up in front of the church and did what when they got the letter? Read it to them. Imagine the shock on their faces when they get to verse 4. Jesus has something against us. We're the soundest church in Asia Minor. Jesus says, I've got a problem. You're holding to the truth. I appreciate that. You're patient. You endure. All that's great. But I do have something against you. And what is the something that Jesus has against them? What is it? But I have this against you that you have abandoned or left your first love. Now, this was on your homework worksheet, so I expect everybody to have something to say about this. What is the first love that they left? What is the first love that they left? John says you've left your first love. Christ. I think that's right. Why is that right, by the way? Manny is right. Why is it right? My sister, she answered and I did. Yeah. It's right because when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest command? What did he say? To love who? Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. That was first. Some people have said, well, maybe they lost the fervor for evangelism. That's probably true. Maybe they lost their love for people and they were just so worried. That's right. But above everything, they lost love for God. Now, here's the irony. Go to Ephesians 6 and verse 24. The last thing that Paul said to them was, don't do this. Look at Ephesians 6, 24, and let's get somebody to read that. Ephesians 6 and verse 24. What does Paul say at the end of his letter to the church at Ephesus? All right, may your lowest reads. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ with sincerity. You knew a translation says something like, with love incorruptible. You see that? The last thing Paul said is don't lose your love. The first thing Jesus says he has against them 30 years later, you lost them. They heard Paul on the sound teaching. They missed him when it came to the love. This is a big problem. And well, we'll spend a little bit of time on this. We should be warned that in defending Jesus, we don't become good at that but failing to love Jesus. There are some people, I believe, that love to point out other people's wrongs more than they love to talk about all the things that are right with Jesus. Is pointing out false doctrine a good thing to do, a right thing to do? Shake or not? Y'all aren't speaking, so we're going to go force them. <laughs> Shake or not? Yes. Right? We've got to do that. Jesus praises them for doing that. But is that all? It's not all. They left their first love, and they went after the wrong thing. If you only work out your upper body, and you always skip leg, leg day, you're going to look pretty funny, right? If you only worry about, we got a straight false teachers, hey, you know baptism is for the rich? What are we known for? That's what I worry about. Are we only known as the people, y'all don't have the instrument. Hey, baptism for the rich. Oh, that's great. We've got to be known for those things because the New Testament mentions those. 
What's our first love? I mean, I love those things, but what's first for me? It's not just, well, the denominational world is in sin, John said. I love that. I'm going to preach those sermons. Neil and I are going, that's right. But what are we known for first? What do people say? This is what these folks are really all about. The church at Ephesus, they love pointing out doctrinal error. They love pointing out the things that people miss. Jesus says, I've got something against you. You've left the thing that mattered most. McGuigan, in his little commentary on Revelation, he was a brother in Christ, Jim McGuigan, he says, have you ever noticed how the development of a debating spirit seems to wither a man? And he talked about this idea that, listen, it's important we need to have healthy and good debates, but McGuigan said, you know some people, over time, all they learn how to do is spiritually sword fight. They are ready to whip out their Bible and hit you with verses. And then he said, over time, it just withers them. He said, let it be said of us if people see us in spiritual engagement. I can't believe how kind and nice they were to their opponents. The church at Ephesus, they missed this. And it caused them to lose focus. What does Jesus tell them to do in verse 5? And if they don't repent, what's going to happen to them? Everybody, I didn't hear it all. <laughs> Remove the lampstand. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. The sign outside would have still said the church of Christ at Ephesus. Jesus would have said, not my people. You would have gone there to visit on vacation, and you would have said, I've heard a sound sermon. They told me everything that we believe and everything got right, and Jesus would have said, that's not my church. That's shocking to me. That's scary to think that we could get all those doctrinal things right, and Jesus could say, I don't know you. If you went to a church, just think about it. You went on vacation. You went to a church. And I know some people tell me about this. There were the days you could just drive out of town, don't make any plans, pop into a church of Christ, and everything was just like the New Testament said. But imagine if you went to one today on vacation, and you pull up and they've got a band. They've got a woman preacher. They don't give the supper. You would say, I'm in the what place? But what if they had all of that? And it was the coldest place you've ever been. Nobody shook your hand. Nobody said anything to you. We would, we, is this a sound church? I wonder, is Ephesus a sound church? That was on the sheet, by the way. Because sometimes people are going out of town on Facebook and they'll say, do you know of any sound church? And I think it's a good question, but I think sometimes what we mean when we ask that is, do they dot the I's and cross the T's? And I know it's impossible to figure all of that out on one visit. But I hope in our definition of a sound church, a spiritually healthy church, we mean everything the New Testament means. Because Paul also told the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 26, and 27, preach the whole counsel of God. What does that mean, the whole counsel of God? All of it. Not just the rebuking stuff, but also the love stuff. You've got to have that. They didn't get that right. And Jesus says he's going to do something to them. All right, then verse 6, they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? Besides a hard name to pronounce. <laughs> Who are they? What do we know about them from the Bible? Let's just talk about what John says. What do you know about the Nicolaitans based on Revelation 2 says? No moral standing. That's right. And we should do what with their deeds? Hate their deeds. You know you're God's person when you not only love what God loves, but also when you do what? Hate what God hates. Go to Psalm 139 quickly. Psalm 139, and the first person that gets there, just start reading at about verse 21. This is a cross-reference for you, maybe to write in the margin. Revelation Psalm 139 21. Let's just get somebody to start reading when you get there. This is David at the end. This is a famous psalm. He says, you know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. But notice what he says at the end. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? All right, that's good. 
I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Is that right to say what David is saying? Let me give you a hint. Yes, it's in the Bible, right? You've got to hate the things that God hates. Hate what's evil, Romans 12, 9. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Second century sources, so like 100 years after this was written, they tell us this about the Nicolaitans, that they were an early Gnostic group that practiced immorality. Some people say they compromised with the imperial cult, with emperor worship. So these would be the folks to show up in church in Ephesus and say, hey, you can worship idols. It's okay. God's not going to be mad. And John says, y'all hate those deeds, and that's right. Now, what does he say in verse 7? Somebody read verse 7. Revelation 2, 7, what do we have? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will eat from the tree of life, which is the midst of the paradise of God. All right, this is important. He's going to say this to several churches. This word, Nikaio, it means to overcome, to win. If you do it, he says, I've got something for you. They have to overcome. Here are the places. It appears 17 times in the book. Here are the places where it appears in the letters. So Revelation 2 and 3. I was doing this with Andre yesterday. He got this right, so I know you can get this right, okay? Nikaio, what kind of shoe does that sound like? Nike, that's right, because that's where the Greek word comes from. So when they read Nikanti, the one that overcomes, Jesus says, you'll eat in the paradise of God, they would have thought about this. They would have thought about Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. By the way, Phil Knight was just infatuated with Greek mythology, so when he started the company, that's why he called it Nike. The swoosh symbolizes victory, but this is where this word comes from. When people read this in the first century and they heard those words, they would hear winner. The one who wins or triumphs or overcomes. What does he say they're going to get in verse 7? So the one that conquers or overcomes, I will do what? What is that? What's the tree of life? Russell? You'll live forever. Where did we first see that? Garden eat. It's an echo back there. But it's something else. I think John writes half of the book of Revelation with his tongue out, like mocking the people that are reading this from Rome. Because in Ephesus, one of the signs of the symbols for Artemis was this idea of this tree. So they thought that Artemis represented life. And John says, hey, if you overcome, you'll eat from the real tree of life. Not the fake and phony one that Artemis claims to uphold and to praise. But you'll eat from the forever, the real tree of life. That's the one Jesus has. Don't worry about the Romans. Don't give in to emperor worship. Keep rebuking false teachers, but get your love back. Matthew 24, verse 12, Jesus says, In those days, it'll be troublesome times, and the love of many will grow cold. And sometimes that can happen to a person. As times get more difficult, we can become so fixed on opposing error that we forget love. C.S. Lewis, in his reflection on the psalm, says, A man must not always be defending the truth. There must be a time to feast them. I think that's at the heart of Jesus' word to the church in Ephesus. Hey, I love that you're I love that you're defending the truth. That's important. Don't forget to feast on it. I know our world's morally bankrupt, but that's not all that the Bible talks about. There still are great things happening in the world, in the kingdom of God, and there still is the Christian admonition to love, no matter how dark it gets out there. And that's his message to love us that day. Okay, this church, this confessor is short of Revelation 2, 8 through 11. John says, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty. You are rich, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days, and you will have tribulation. But you be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So the one who conquers, there's our word again, he will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, similar introduction from Jesus here. By the way, all the introductions go back to what John saw in Revelation 1. So he'll bring up something based on that image that he saw. And why would Jesus introduce himself to this church by reminding them, what does he say in verse 8? I'm the first and the last, the one who died and came back to life. Why would he mention that to Smyrna? I mean, Ephesus could have used that same thing, but why tell the church at Smyrna, hey, I died and came back to life? What are they struggling with? Persecution. I'm the one who died and came back to life. If you die, don't worry about that. If you die serving me, draw an arrow to verse 10. It's probably the most famous verse in Revelation for churches of Christ, right? Be faithful unto what? Death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Jesus says, I can give it to you because I'm still alive. They killed me and I rose from the dead. I'm going to raise you up. Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, God will give life to your mortal bodies. Don't worry about it. So he starts off by telling them this. And then he says he knows some things about them. What is he? Why does he know that they are poor and suffering, but they are rich? Why might these Christians have been poor materially, money-wise? He says your tribulation and your poverty, why are they poor? Yeah, having their stuff taken. I read from one source that said in the first century, everybody every year had to make one sacrifice to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And then if you did it, you received a certificate to buy goods and do business. What if you wouldn't do that? How are you going to survive? I know your poverty and your tribulation. But they're rich. Why are they rich? They, they have Christ. Ephesians 1.3. We have how many spiritual blessings in Christ? All of them. And so they're rich even though they're suffering. Jesus says, you don't have anything to fear. They're rich spiritually because of what they're suffering. Um, when he says you'll be tested 10 days, he says, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's going to throw some of you into prison. You'll be tested for how long? 10 days. That's probably symbolic, meaning complete suffering for a short amount of time. What does that echo back to in your mind? Think Old Testament. 10 days of testing. Starts with the D, ends with annual. Everybody. Daniel. Remember that? Daniel and the boys, 10 days, test us. We're going to come out better. Jesus is probably, I told you, the Old Testament is the key to the book of Revelation. And when he says, you're going to be tested for 10 days, just think back to those guys. What happened after their testing for 10 days? Daniel 1, 12 through 15. They came out better, and the old King James says, fatter in flesh than all of the others. You'll be tested 10 days. And just like your Hebrew spiritual forefathers, you'll pass with flying colors. Don't worry about it. I give you the crown of life. And they're going to go through a period of testing. Ten days in the Bible sometimes was used this way. You think about Jacob, he's frustrated and he says to his wives, Your father has changed my wages ten times, Genesis 31 7. And so this idea of ten doesn't mean actual ten 24 hour periods. It's going to be short, it'll be complete, and you'll get through it. Who throws them into prison based on verse 10? We've got like. Four minutes. Everybody, who throws them into prison? Verse 10. The devil. Are you sure about that? How sure are you? Raise your hand if you're sure it's the devil that throws them into prison. Some of y'all are suspect. This is what the Bible says. Yeah. Like, what a time trying to give us a curveball. Here's the point. Who was persecuting them? What nation was persecuting these Christians? Don't you see John trying to reorient their vision? It's not the Romans throwing you into prison. It's always think spiritual warfare. Don't think Republicans and Democrats. Don't think Russia and China. Always think the devil is the one doing this. John could have said that. Hey, the Romans are going to throw you into prison 10 days. He didn't say that. 
He said the devil, Satan, because we need to remember we're in spiritual warfare. It's not fleshly. Here are the passages. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Paul says we walk in the flesh. We don't war after the flesh. Our war is a spiritual one, and we wage war with spiritual weapons. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Paul says principalities and powers in the heavenly places. We're at war against the God of this world. Now, no doubt, he uses human instruments that surrender their free will, and they will give an account. I just think it's interesting that John doesn't allow this to think it's us versus the people of Smyrna. We're going to get in a culture war against our nation. John says Satan's going to throw you in prison for 10 days. Satan wasn't there when they were on the guard ground, but yes, he was. Satan's the one that's doing this work, and we need to talk more like that. We need to talk more about spiritual warfare and not like our fleshly contemporary. They talk like that. This group and that group, them and them, and they're the real problem with this country and our nation and our work. Satan's working. That's what's working. First Peter 5 and verse 8. And that's what John says is doing this. And then the last thing, if they remain faithful, they will receive a crown. Um, what negative thing does Jesus say about the church in Smyrna? What do they have to fix? What did the church of Smyrna have to get right? Nothing. This doesn't mean this church was, every church has problems, but Jesus can look at a church and be satisfied. He can look at a congregation and say, you're taking care of business just like you should. And with the church of Smyrna, there's another one that's gonna have this same report. Nothing on their report card. There's nothing to it, you got it right. You're suffering, my message to you is simply to hold on and not to leave. And that's what he says to the church at Smyrna. And they probably didn't have the biggest building or the most prominent position, but Jesus' message to them is essentially, don't quit and you will receive the crown of life. And you won't be hurt by the second death, he says. That's Revelation 20 and verse 6. He says, go through the first death and enjoy the second life. But if you shriek back, you'll suffer the first death and the second one. So don't quit and don't give up. We made it halfway through chapter 2. I think that's good progress. Two more churches in this chapter and then three in chapter 3. But we are right on schedule. I'm going to send you out the questions again on Friday, Lord willing. If you have any questions about this, I think we're doing good. But I'm going to push you just a little bit more. We need a little bit more interaction from the, from the group here. Y'all feel free to engage with me and say, that's wrong, I don't like that, or I've got a question about this, okay? All right, thanks for a good play. <laughs>
Thank you. 